Hello, friends. I just wanted to let you know I will be taking a few weeks break, and then I'll come back with a few more episodes, and then we'll wrap up season two. Welcome to the Stuff Up Podcast, where we delve into different topics to learn more about ourselves and more about others. And on today's show, I welcome Megan McLaren, who is a registered social worker, life coach, behavioral health consultant, and clinical educator. You wear many, many hats. <laughs> thank you, Megan. I'm excited to talk to you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just as excited, if not even more excited. So I so appreciate your time. That's a lot of things that you do. <laughs> Let's say in a normal day, what kind of stuff do you do at work? So in a normal day, I am working in a role where I'm supporting physicians, uh, working with patients with multiple mental health diagnoses, as well as chronic disease management. And then my clinical educator hat is also uh, reviewing competency of my staff under me too. So most of my patients that I see do have a mental health diagnosis, like I mentioned, but then at night I have my life coaching business. And so I'm working with patients almost on the flip side of that, where they're wanting more support in identifying how they can reach their goals, how they can create a life of fulfillment and accomplishment and meaningful interpersonal relationships. And so you're right. I do wear many hats. So you kind of have to switch. because I do. Yeah. Because <laughs> when you're working with people with mental health issues, you talk to them differently and have different techniques than totally. when you're life coaching. You're more like, I mean, I've worked with life coach. I find they're encouraging and helping you figure things out yourself. Yeah, you're so right. <laughs> Very fun. I love life coaches, man. They're like the best. Yeah. You've got and... Good ones. I mean, I've heard they're well, just like the therapist, right? They're gonna be good, they're gonna be bad. Like <laughs> totally. And that's what's so fulfilling about the life coaching for me, because it is that encouragement supportive piece of it. Whereas my day job is a little bit more directive is that because I work with a team of physicians, you know, I'm giving very clear care plans and treatment plans as to how we can support our patient population, which is meaningful work to me as well. But I really love to let the person be the driver of their treatment options, whether it's, you know, in a medical setting or, or the life coaching, right? Like they know themselves best, whether they have a mental health diagnosis or not, they know themselves best. And so I'm there to kind of offer education and tools but when they can take control how they want to move forward on that, it's just so rewarding for me to watch and be a part of. Mm -hmm. I would think that would be amazing to just see people flourish and, and the light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, yay, they get it, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're always like, oh, thank you, Megan, right? I'm like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything, right? Like I've, I've given you some tools, but I'm not the one pulling you out of bed in the morning. I'm not the one, you know, holding you accountable or giving you motivation or keeping you disciplined. They are totally the ones that should take onus for a hundred percent of their successes. Mm -hmm. So it is just so awesome to watch people just kind of grow and unfold and do well on their journeys. Do you find in today's society right now, like are most people... I feel like there's so much more out there now than when we were growing up, right? And so they have so many tools that you can you can Google a YouTube video or an article and there's so many things. But do you th find that maybe that makes things a little bit worse sometimes because you can get overwhelmed? Like in a matter of minutes, I can be reading an article on this and I need to do that. And I need, 
And I'm like, oh my word, yes, I need all this. But then I get so stressed and overwhelmed myself. Do you find that it's hard to balance with people? Mm-hmm. They kind of yeah. know what to do, but then they're like, they feel frozen or... <laughs> totally, totally. And you know what? Even, even I get like that when I've gone through my own journey of working on my own mental health. It was like, I had all these tools and now how do I actually put it into action? And you're right. There are so many free resources or just stuff out there that are telling people what kind of the best options are if they're wanting to work on one aspect of their life, which can be really overwhelming and confusing. Like, which one is the best for me? Right. And so I always get a bit of a bee in my bonnet with Dr. Google because people will say, well, I Googled it, right? (laughs) I Googled (laughs) it and this is the best thing for me. And so it's nice that I still have the educational background to be able to support my patients because I can say, you know, sure, this would be a great option for you, but let's actually look at what their research says. And so I'm going to tell you what their research says about how this is going to impact your your body and your mind. And then you tell me if it's a good idea for you, right? right. I want them to have all the facts before they just listen to Dr. Google or whatever is trending right now for, for diet fads or, you know, whatever it is, right? I want them to have all the facts. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And then we can talk about how to actually put that plan into action because I really encourage like small steps for all the people that I work with trying to work on your mental health and your diet and you're getting a new job and you want to sell your house. It's like completely overwhelming. Nobody can do that. Right. So I'm like, let's just start small, small behavior changes and kind of see how, how you do from there. I felt that was the best thing that I learned <laughs> because it was always like, go big or go home. And, and then when you find, when you, cause you feel like, okay, that's not me. Cause I failed within a week. <laughs> so you think that's only for like the A type personalities, the big CEOs, the billionaires. And then you realize, wait, start small. I can do this. And then you realize, wait, this is kind of how life should be. And it's just so freeing. Absolutely. And we are in a place right now in society where I feel like they're really glamorizing that hustle culture. Like, yeah, you should work 12 hour days and you should say to yourself, I have 24 hours in a day. And what am I going to do with those 24 hours? And it's like, no, nobody's designed to be hustling all the time. And we have to kind of honor our bodies and our minds and check in with ourselves and allow time for progress, knowing that true change takes time. It's not an overnight thing. And so when we come to a place of acceptance around those expectations of how long it's going to take to actually make a good change, then we can feel better about ourselves, right? When we say to ourselves, okay, I've only maybe done two workouts this week, or I've only worked on my mental health this many times this week, but I really try to get away from the only language, right? Because one time is better than no times. And one time is still a commitment that you've made and done for yourself. And so I always celebrate those things with patients. It's not only, right? It's like, you're doing it. Be proud of that. (laughs) That's amazing. The language used. Yeah. And I I mean, how many times I've seen these stories where like, yeah, I was working and doing the hustle. And then maybe six months later, they have a breakdown. And then like, <laughs> I was totally. like in a deep depression or I was sick. And yeah, I can relate. So. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And even when we look at mental health, I feel like there's such a misconception about what type of person has a problem with their mental health or is suffering with a mental health diagnosis. You know, they they portray this person that is maybe lazy and not working and all these things that society has kind of deemed them to be. Whereas I can't tell you how many 
doctors, lawyers, CEOs, like high functioning people sit in my chairs every day because they're suffering. So they are part of the hustle culture, which has then made it so that they have zero time to take care of themselves. So right. while they may look like they're very successful on paper, and they probably are because they're, they're doing well in their professional realms, they're really suffering in terms of their mental health. Mm-hmm. But that actually makes me feel better because I don't necessarily look good on paper. That's why I'm like, <laughs> okay, giving my resume out, I'm like, oh man, can you just like meet me? Like just meet me for an interview. I'm yeah. way better in person. I don't look that good on paper. <laughs> <laughs> Or like the jobs that I've had are not what I want to be doing. So like, yeah. Anyway, I told you we're going to get off on different topics. But what what I really wanted to talk to you about, because I've been wanting to do an episode like this for a while, is narcissism. And we hear this, like it's one of those terms that everyone says all the time, right? Like I've used it. I'm like, oh yeah, that person I just met, they're a narcissist. But I think really... First of all, okay, I want to ask you if you have the term, the definition of a narcissist, and really, are there that many out there in the world? Yeah, so you're so right. Like, we're always like, oh, that person's a narcissist, or (laughs) I'm a narcissist, or whatever, right? But to be a true narcissist, it's a diagnosed personality disorder. And so even in my own professional working life, I've only ever worked with one, and I've been practicing for over eight years. And so it's actually quite difficult to diagnose a narcissist. And sure, there are some some tick boxes to kind of go through, but they need to really undergo like a full psychological assessment to truly be confirmed with the diagnosis. And I think everybody would, would be pretty familiar with a lot of the traits in terms of like those grandiose feelings of themselves and being like really infatuated with whether it's their personal appearance, pardon me, or the perception of their accomplishments or feeling like they know everything, having a really unrealistic expectation, what they want to accomplish, being really fixated on achievements and materialistic things, being pretty emotionally neglectful and not very empathetic or or not empathetic at all. Those are probably a lot of the common traits that we see even portrayed in like movies, right? Of a narcissist or why we might say someone is a narcissist. I think when they're just incredibly self-involved would be why you might say, oh, that person's such a narcissist. So if somebody has a few of those traits, because I've Googled this, sorry, yeah. Google, <laughs> and, and I see it in some people I know, and I'm like, but they're not narcissists, but they have some of the traits. So like, how would, and maybe this is like for scientifically, they would know, but like, how many traits do you need to be, or would you have to be diagnosed as a narcissist? by a medically professional. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I don't know the exact number of those traits that they would need to have, but I would say if somebody ticks one or two or three of those boxes, it's unlikely that they're a diagnosed narcissist because you're right. Like even I probably have some few traits of a narcissist and that I can be self-involved depending on what I'm working on or unaware of other people's emotions or feelings, right? But I think the key piece is that I still have meaningful relationships in my life and narcissists do not. So they have a huge history of that relationship breakdown. They can't maintain relationships. And, you know, there's different subsets of a narcissist. So there's like the malignant narcissist, the classic narcissist, overt, covert. I'm probably going to miss some, but yeah, there's a couple of different subsets too of, of the different personality traits. 
And usually where I have done the most work around it is supporting uh, family members or friends of a narcissist because they can be incredibly difficult to, to coexist with. Right. Because they will, a lot of times they make you feel like you're stupid or you're to blame and it's your fault, right? And they have a lot of, do they also have like a charisma, a lot of them? So that yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And very manipulative. And so some of them are more kind of covertly manipulative, meaning that they do it more on the sly, like with the maybe passive aggressive language or the guilt tripping, whereas some are very overtly manipulative. And so it depends, you know, where they fit in those subtypes, but you're totally right in that narcissists will make you feel like you're the problem. And so the popular term that most people are are used to right now is gaslighting, right? So (laughs) you bring a problem to a narcissist and they can totally flip it around and tell you every reason why you're the source of the problem. And they're not interested in, in listening or understanding your perspective. And so when I work with, you know, family members or spouses, children of narcissists, we do a lot of work around kind of getting off that point that you're not going to be investing your time with a narcissist to get them to understand it's not going to happen. They're not really capable of being present enough to listen to your perspective with the goal of understanding their goal is going to make sure that they're right. Mm. I find the worst because it can be, Even when you've taken, even when you think you have good critical thinking skills, or even if you like, you're a very intelligent person, we see this time and time again, right? You're like, how did I not see it? How did this happen to me? And I think the subtle manipulation is so tricky because if it's so overt, a lot of people can probably be like, whoa, that's not healthy. I'm getting away from this person. But when it's so subtle, and you start to question because they're really good at playing with you. Absolutely. And so in the past, when I've worked with whether it's spouses or ex-spouses of a narcissist, they absolutely had those questions around like, how did this happen to me? You know, like, and their thinking process is more so along the lines of like, what's wrong with me that this happened to me? But nothing's wrong with you. Unfortunately, you have so many good traits. And I should really say, fortunately, right? Like fortunately, you actually have so many good traits. You're a trusting, empathetic, kind person, but a narcissist can snip that out. And so they're going to play on all those wonderful, good traits of you and exploit those. And they're a master in that exploitation. And so I always try to encourage those, those kind of victims of a narcissist to reframe that in knowing that it's not your fault. You didn't do anything. Like you're dealing with somebody who has a mental health diagnosis. And when we talk about malignant narcissists, those are the ones that are actually like sociopaths. So they have no empathy whatsoever. They have no remorse, no feelings of guilt. Wow. I have like three questions and I don't want to like forget that. (laughs) But well, actually first I was going to say what, what you said about they know to sniff it out. And that reminds me of this podcast I was listening to. This woman came from an abusive relationship and she's a Christian. And so in the church, there's, there's so much manipulation. I grew up in the church and I, after you see, once you see it, you see it. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also in certain denominations, women are kind of considered less than. And so she said the men, the narcissists know to go to the Christian dating sites, right? get the Christian women, because we're going to be the ones who are like, because we're always told don't question authority. You're supposed to be submissive. You're supposed to be this. And that really hit me because I was like, 
yeah, I see it. I've seen this world and it's true. And so Mm -hmm. religion can be a very easy way for them to get people because they're, if people are in a sort of like, especially a very controlled type of religion where it's all about that, it's so easy for them to get in there. And yeah. So what they're going to do likely is they're going to kind of look at what your values are, right? And so for that demographic of people, well, their religion and their spirituality is a huge core value for them. Or for some people, their family might be a core value or their children or whatever it is. And so they're going to take that core value and then use it to their advantage. And so for some people, your core values are kind of a negative and a positive thing in the sense that, yeah, your, your spirituality might give you strength. but if somebody knows how to kind of play on that in a way to their benefit, then now it's become a little bit of a weakness for you. And so it's not that there's, again, anything wrong with you as a person. It's just that that person is really, really skilled in that manipulation and exploitation of someone. Right. Um, you also mentioned sociopath. So <laughs> <laughs> I think this is confusing because remember, like we hear psychopath, sociopath, and then like, narcissist. So are all sociopaths narcissists or what's the difference? Like, how does it work? Ooh, that's a tough question. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Being, <laughs> being someone who doesn't diagnose myself, but I would edge on the side of caution and say, yeah, very likely. I think if you're a sociopath and a narcissist, kind of the commonalities there is that lack of empathy. So you do something terrible to somebody else and you don't feel very bad about it with a sociopath and a narcissist. You know, there might be some different things that might not line up, but maybe the sociopath doesn't have a fixation with their outward appearance. Whereas depending on the narcissist, they may, they may be looking in the mirror and and feeling how they look and really concerned about those materialistic items. Mm -hmm. But I think the key piece is the empathy, because when you have a relationship with a narcissist and you come to them with your source of pain or your feedback for them, it's not being received, right? There's no understanding on their part about wanting to help with that pain that they've played a part in causing. Right. There's no real discussion where you say, wow, this really hurt me. And they're like, oh my word, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. (laughs) They would say, well, how do you think I feel? How do you think I feel right now? Right. That's the way they would kind of flip it around on you. See, I've had people do that to me. And then I question, are they a narcissist? (laughs) (laughs) They might take some of the boxes. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) Let's say somebody didn't really no, and they married a narcissist and now they're having to dealing with them mm-hmm. like let's say they start to realize wait something's wrong here what are some good techniques to kind of when you're in an argument or something like how do you stand your ground but also not have them come at you mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's truly difficult to be in like a close personal relationship with a narcissist and so if you are <laughs> In whether it's like an intimate relationship or maybe the family member who's a narcissist, you know, boundaries is like the number one thing to have with a narcissist because they're going to push, 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 even when you've set the boundary. And like any boundary, when you make the boundary, you have to be prepared to then act on the consequence. So that would sound like, okay, so if you talk to me about this issue again, when I've asked you not to, then the next time you call, I'm just not going to pick up the phone. That's how you hold the boundary, right? Uh-huh. But then if you go ahead and pick up the phone... And they're not going to take the boundary seriously. Don't engage in, like I said, in arguments with the narcissist, because in order for you to have a meaningful conversation, someone on the other end of that conversation has to be invested in the relationship. And a narcissist is not. 
So your feelings, if you're hurt, you know what the outcome is, is not really of their concern. And that's really tricky for people to get kind of off of that point because when it's a family member or a parent, lots of times I've experienced with, with my patients, that's really hard because they want that relationship with their parent. And so I encourage them to get some education around what it means to be a narcissist and if it's actually like a diagnosed personality disorder so that they can kind of understand where their thinking process comes from. So that's one like really crucial area is like do some more education around that and be prepared to make those boundaries and knowing that you're going to have to follow through on some really tough choices. And some of those choices might be distance, right? Right. Distancing yourself from that person. I feel like more nowadays we're talking about that kind of stuff. Whereas people, maybe the older generation would say, well, it's still your parent. You can't cut them out of your life. But I think more and more we're talking about where it's like, well, actually, they're very toxic. They're destroying my mental health. And yes, I can cut them out of my life. And so I think that's healthy that we're starting to understand that a lot more now. Absolutely. And in cases where it's a parent, you know, and it's difficult to cut that person out because you want the support of your parent in your life experiences then I encourage, you know, you to find some other sources of support. So, you know, strengthening your other circle, whether it be a friend or a different type of community so that you still have people in your life that are rooting for you and that you can talk to about difficult things. So you're not constantly looking from that validation from the narcissist because it's just not going to be there, right? So coming to a place of acceptance around that takes time because you have to spend a bit of time kind of grieving the relationship that you don't have. Right. What if you set boundaries, but I have an example. (laughs) (laughs) If this person wants to talk about something and it's all they want to talk about, let's say politics. Yeah. And you're just like, you disagree. So you're like, I really don't want to talk about it. But then you get shamed or like put down because, well, you don't want to talk about it. And they think you're stupid because you don't want to engage in dialogue, but it's not a dialogue. It's being talked at all the time. Mm -hmm. So if this was a person that you could actually dialogue with, you're like, hey, great, let's talk about it, even though we disagree. Mm-hmm. And maybe this isn't necessarily a narcissist, but if it's somebody who like you just can't, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. How do you set kind of boundaries with that? Because you just feel like I'm trying to set boundaries by saying I don't want to talk about this. And then you're consistently put down because, well, you don't know what you're talking about and you don't want to d- discuss and you. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So those types of like boundary discussions can like span across the relationships, right? Not just with the narcissist, but when someone doesn't respect your boundary, you have to already know going into that, what am I prepared to do? Like, am I prepared to get up and leave the family function or leave the dinner table because this person is not respecting my boundary? And typically, like if I was working with you <laughs> one-on-one <laughs> and we are having a conversation with this, I would ask you like, so Steph, what comes up for you? when they insinuate that you don't know what you're talking about like do you think you don't know what you're talking about do you have feelings of of shame or guilt or like you're less than and doing some more work around building up your self-confidence so that you feel rock solid in those boundaries so that when you set it no matter what they say it's not sinking in right so in right. order to do that, it takes practice because you have to kind of delve deep into like, oof, what is coming up for me right now that when they said that I didn't know what I was talking about, it actually kind of stung a bit. Yeah, it gets to that part where you care less about what people think because you know yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Sorry. 
that kind of is that yeah, it doesn't have to be narcissist to deal with that kind of situation. Oh, yeah, anybody, right? Like anybody, because boundaries are hard. And so like I'll just use an example for me. When I set a boundary with my kids, sometimes I feel guilty about that, right? I feel like, oh, I'm not the fun mom. Oh, I should just let them stay up later because they want to, even though I know in my mind, my rational mind, that no, they're two, they need to go to bed because they're tired. And because they're two, they don't know they're tired. So I have to process like, why do I think I'm a bad mom right now or not a fun mom? Why is that coming up for me? Does that come from a childhood experience or does that come from another experience in my life where some other person told me that it wasn't fun? Because we have learned behaviors like that, that kind of follow us through the themes of our life. And so kind of figuring out where those triggers come from is that sort of inward look or inward work, sorry, that I do with people to figure out like, where does that trigger source come from so that we can do the work around changing the narrative? Because I am a fun mom. I am fun. So so I shouldn't feel so triggered when my kids, you know, throw a tantrum because they don't want to go to bed, but I'm also human. And so the trigger is still going to happen. And for most people, it will still happen. It's just that hopefully the length of time that you're triggered gets shorter and shorter, right? It's like a little blip. And then you have the, the inner narrative where you're like, no, no, no. I'm making the right choice. I trust my judgment. And then you can move forward. I think it's exciting that like the more you do something, like the more you think positive thoughts, that you can then stop the negative thoughts and it gets easier and easier. I just think it's just amazing how like our minds, our bodies, everything works, right? (laughs) Oh, totally. And I tell people all the time that our minds are actually naturally negative by nature because it's a protective factor, right? And so we're going to suss out every like possible bad case scenario so that we can protect ourselves. But what gets hard is we get stuck in the loop of the negative thinking and assessing out every possible bad case scenario. And then it just starts to take over. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've been dealing with that kind of unlearning and relearning and Reparenting yourself, basically, I think we have to do. Yeah, Yeah, you're so right. I love that term, reparenting. Yeah, you're so right. Actually, I did. So can a narcissist, are they born like that? Or is it something that happens to them in childhood? Yeah, it's typically something that's a learned behavior. And so it's really hard to pinpoint where it comes from. Like I read some research studies on somewhere. They've said, well, it could have been from experiences where they were constantly praised or constantly put on top of that pedestal. Or it can be the complete opposite. They're constantly shamed, constantly felt like they were not good enough. And so now they've overcorrected into thinking that they're everything of egg chips. <laughs> right. And so it's really hard to pinpoint like where it comes from, but it's definitely a learned behavior, just like with any personality disorder. So it can come from trauma, it can come from life experiences. Does that mean that maybe like they can change then if they really want to get help? Yeah, so there's no like definitive cure. <laughs> For narcissism, the most effective treatment for it is like therapy or or psychotherapy. So talk therapy is what I mean to say by that. And really building up with them, their self-esteem, you know, working on boundaries, teaching them to be able to take criticism and feedback, teaching them to have a realistic kind of appearance of themselves so that they can be realistic in their goal setting and what they see for themselves. There are some medication options, not specifically to treat the narcissism, but lots of narcissists also have symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so medication can help with that piece of it. Hmm. But really, yeah, the most effective treatment option is continual psychotherapy. Right. But a lot of them probably 
if they don't really have the empathy or like they don't probably want to change most of them, I guess. Yeah, it can be an absolutely like a difficult role to get into. And so here's a slippery slope with talk therapy too, is that you show up to the appointment to talk about yourself, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so some people like a narcissist might actually get something fulfilling out of that. So it would take a special kind of therapist to be able to kind of challenge them on their thoughts and push back and be able to make sure they're, you know, making progress and doing the work. Right. And that probably would make them angry because if they, it is fun going to therapy and you just get to talk. I mean, I've done that a lot. I'm like, oh, but then if, if you're being challenged, right, which is hard for anybody, but for somebody who that they don't like to be challenged, I guess maybe that's, Mm -hmm. maybe that's why people, I know people who think therapy is, doesn't work. And I'm like, well, it doesn't work for people who refuse to get help. (laughs) Well, absolutely. Whether you're a narcissist or not, right? It's like, you have to go there and be prepared for some stuff to be presented to you in like an objective way, because how I see your situation might be completely different how you see it. And so therapy is something you have to be ready and committed to. Like, don't enter it if you're not ready to make that change, because it's work. And sometimes you might leave a session like feeling really crappy about yourself because all kinds of emotions are going to come up. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if I should ask this or not. So my friend and I had a disagreement once because I said, I'm pretty sure Trump is a narcissist. And she said, no, he just likes to talk about himself. And he, but he's not a narcissist. But I Googled it and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure he is. Do you have any thoughts on like, because when you talk about grandiose and thinking they're smarter than everybody and they, Mm -hmm. yeah, you see a lot of that in him. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, we talked about this before we, we jumped on. And so, you know, when you're looking at those tick boxes in terms of the grandiose thinking and the lack of empathy for for others and just like really thriving off the praise and admiration of other people. Sure, you know, I would say he definitely ticks some boxes in that realm. <laughs> but I'm not a diagnostician, so I certainly can't diagnose, but right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'd love to see his therapy sessions. <laughs> yeah. Is, so do you have any other thoughts on narcissists that... Um, I just think it's important that if you're dealing with a narcissist, you know, in your life, that you create that support for yourself, you know, however that looks for you. If that means that you want to like seek professional help and, and get some counseling, wonderful. If you just need to have a tighter knit circle around you for that support, because they can be incredibly draining, incredibly draining, right? And I also want to preface that only you can decide if you're going to keep that person in your life. So I'm not here to tell anybody to cut people out of their lives. What I'm here to do is to support you on the path of working with that person or dealing with that person, having that person in your personal life so that you can maintain your boundaries and remain healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are pretty awesome. Definitely good things to do. (laughs) (laughs) So Megan, I really appreciate you coming on talking to me. How can people find you and reach out to you if they need, if they would like to work with you? Yeah. Yeah. So I do have my coaching website. If they'd like to work with me as a, as a life coach, it's, it's up there. Megan I hang out on Instagram and Facebook. Sometimes you might find me on TikTok. I like to do some funny, lighthearted videos there. I'm also a mother. So you know, like to get some outlets and some laughs in those ways. But particularly for Instagram, you know, I love just sharing like free content and kind of themes of the day or themes of the week to support people. Because like you said, there's so many free resources out there. And I think the better that we know about things, the better we can do with ourselves. So yeah, 
Awesome. Thank you so much. This was very helpful and insightful. So I appreciate you, Megan. Oh, good. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to my amazing editor, German, at Your Podcast Editor. You can check him out on Instagram and Twitter. He edits the audio conversations I have with my guests, and he does such an amazing job. And he is such a nice person, very encouraging. So check him out at Your Podcast Editor. If you want to help support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review as it helps other people to find the podcast and listen as well. There is also... Financially, if you want to help support the podcast, you can check out buymeacoffee.com backslash stuff a podcast. Come follow me on the socials on Twitter at Steph underscore Ann underscore web on Instagram, Stephanie underscore Ann underscore web. And you can check out my website, www.stephanieandweb.com, where you can check out the podcast, my blog, and I also have a link on there to buy my children's book, What Should Dragon Do? The main character in the book is called Dragon, and her adventure is living with her two bear roommates. The book consists of three little stories of different circumstances, living with people, and how the tiny things can drive us crazy, and our emotions, and how we react can affect others. I appreciate you. I thank you so much for listening. Now go out there and make it a great day. Bye!